It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast, bringing you the best of my time zone show. You can listen live on your radio weekdays from 10 o'clock, 10 till 1, on your DB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, an extraordinary interview, the full uncut interview that I've done with Daniel Finkelstein, regular on the podcast, Times columnist, conservative peer, friend of the show, and friend of mine. And he's written a new book called Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad. It's the extraordinary story of how his mum, as a child, survived Hitler and Belson before arriving safely in the UK, while his dad grew up in what is now Lviv, was taken to Siberia by the Soviets, and survived all of that to also find his way to the UK. It's an extraordinary story, and it's an extraordinary interview with Danny coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do on the start of the podcast, let's take a look at what's happening in the news with today's columnists. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, it's the Thursday columnist panel where we take a look at the news with Manveen Rana. Morning, Manveen. Nice to have you in rather than beaming in on Zoom. I know, I know. I was in Ireland last week on a phone, but this is nice. (laughs) And this week's Matthew is, from LBC and Channel 4 News, Matt Fry. Does anyone call you Matthew? No one. No, no one. one at all. Unless they're really cross with me and they, you know, they don't want to really upset me. I don't really, I don't, I don't mind. My real name is Matthias or Matthias. And is it? When they ah. see it written down, oh, they can't gonna, spell it or pronounce leave. it. So you're going to have to leave if you're not even a Matthew on your passport. <laughs> I'm not a Matthew, no, I'm sorry. But, but, but what are you? What are you? I'm a Matthew on my passport. Right. And with my gran. I'm a Matthew on the it. passport. That's a that's a good chat-up line, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, blimey. Okay. Uh, very good. Uh, right, so let's talk about uh, Rishi Sunak in the United States meeting Joe Biden. He wants to talk about AI. Uh, it's not hugely clear that Joe Biden's hugely excited about talking about AI. Um, how do you think it's going, Manvi? <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, I think it sort of feels a little bit desperate. You know, like we're sort of there to make mates and, you know, we're just trying to show we're still relevant. So we think we found, you know, the bone that, you know, we can take to them and present as like this is something we can do and be meaningful again. We've got some computers. We've got some computers. Mm, Um, And, I, you know, I just don't know how realistic that is. You know, all this talk of a summit is fine, but if you're going to try and regulate AI, you kind of need to be able to bring China to the table. Well, this is it. I think, you know, if you're not not going to invite the Chinese and you can't invite the Chinese because Washington has told you not to invite the Chinese, you're kind of missing, you know, more than a third of the AI chunk of development in the world. And you're more likely to turn China into a strategic competitor 
when it comes to AI, whether it's civilian uses or military uses. And that's kind of what you don't want. I think the other problem is that um, the the idea of global regulation or guardrails, as as they call them, as if you're talking about toddlers that are kind of misbehaving. I think the idea of global regulation for something that hasn't yet had its big moment but could be catastrophic, or maybe not, we don't know, is really hard. Yeah. I mean, it worked with nuclear power because we had Hiroshima. Otherwise, imagine, you know, nuclear proliferation without Hiroshima. Everyone would have nuclear weapons. Yeah. So I think, I think and of course, you don't want some kind of AI disaster for us to be... Yeah, we don't want an AI that. Hiroshima. You don't no. want that. No, but I think without that, <laughs> it might, might be very difficult. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you really don't need it, yeah. and we don't want it. No. But without it, it might be very hard to have the kind of regulations they're looking for. It also, I mean, everyone keeps comparing it to nuclear and the IAEA mm. and the way they function. But, like, it's just really hard to compare them, the two because, you know, with nuclear, you can police it. You know, people have tried to have mm. secret nuclear programs, but you can see the enrichment of uranium. You can see the things that it takes. With AI, how on earth do you even begin to police Police, well, AI would be policing it. AI, you know, and yeah. it would say, well, actually, I don't think that's a good idea today, or not in that voice necessarily. <laughs> well, then maybe yes. You know, maybe it will. Maybe the voice how many AI matchorlies are there out there? Uh, not are enough. you actually real? Yeah, no, sadly. I'm here, <laughs> you are I'm real. here all the time, morning, noon, and night. <laughs> the one thing, the thing that everyone keeps getting, the thing, maybe it's because it's a bit of AI that people can understand. They talk about the photos and the Pope and his white jacket. Mm. And, all that. and I just think we've had Photoshop and... CGI in film for a long time. For a long time, um, the fact you can fake stuff more easily mm. doesn't mean that fakes haven't been yeah. possible. But also, all the AI experts, you know, who we are all now interviewing on a daily basis, yeah. are saying, "Hang on a minute, you know, let's not be too catastrophic here. Let's not catastrophize." A lot of the stuff that has enabled us to do things on our supercomputers, otherwise known as our smartphones, has to do with AI. It's been yeah. around for a long time. So this, a lot of the stuff is much more gradual. But I think for, for many of us, I don't know about you, you know, the chat GPT moment yeah. of, oh my God, yeah. that person just written my, you know, 1300 bulletins piece a lot better, that computer, than yeah. I could possibly have written it. That was a bit of a wake up. And I think we have to realise that, you know, we're only seeing those bits of it. I think the bit of AI that people are really worried about is if you take that kind of speed and that kind of ability and mm. put it onto a battlefield. Yeah. You know, you can sort of do mass you know, epic scale slaughter yeah. in the way that nuclear weapons did. Yeah, you are catastrophizing again. But I, mean, I know, I, but, but that, that's only because, you know, we, whenever well, we've interviewed right. experts but about I think it, we need that's to, what they're worried so about. So the good thing about this is that he's, to get back to Rishi and, yeah. and Joe Biden, is that they are talking about it. And I think it, it, something would be a really good idea just to have that conversation about the good stuff and the bad stuff yeah. to, to get the balance right. You know, is Britain going to play a crucial role in this? I think you're right. It sounds a little bit desperate, you know. Yeah. And then again. And you talked about the battlefield. Obviously, the other thing which is on the agenda is Ukraine and uh, Rishi Sunak trying to make sure, well, I think trying to keep Joe Biden on side, but then the real prospect of if Donald Trump comes yeah. back in the White House, what impact that has? I'm not so... It's just interesting. I mean, the Republicans have been much cooler about Ukraine than, than the Democrats have been. I suspect that it would be quite difficult for the Republicans to turn tone this down despite their isolationist instincts. And the, the reason is China. What mm. the US is really focused on, what really gets Biden out of bed in the morning um, in a slightly wobbly way, what really, the only thing that really unites Democrats and Republicans is the issue of China. If you can keep Russia busy in Ukraine and prevent them from getting involved on China's side over Taiwan, that has its own value. It does, but I f- I'm not sure they're thinking that through. My fear is that, you know, at the moment, it's just a, a small you know, little a firebrand selection of Republicans. It's by no means the main bit yeah, of the party. Yeah. But if you listen to the base, if you listen to people in the South, you know, 
people who are sort of Trump supporters in their hearts, people who've been watching they Tucker Carlson. They don't care Carlson, about Ukraine. Yeah. They don't care about Ukraine. Yeah. They aren't that worried about Russia. Yeah. And if they think China is the threat, then they want to think that that money is going towards fighting yeah. China rather than helping Ukraine. Yeah. And it's really odd because it's something that's happened to the Republican Party just in this generation where, you know, you've got Trump yeah. coming and changing everything. Whereas if you look at the old-fashioned Republicans, you know... It was about business. Of, it was transactional. It was about business, but yeah, also, yeah. also about defence. You know, most yeah. of the last yes. century has been about this fight against Russia. And here you have Ukraine effectively fighting that fight for you, make, you know, making sure they can't possibly also, have a but, hot but war with very, America for the next generation. But it's a very cost-effective way of generating American power, projecting yeah. American power. You know, they're not spending nearly as much money in Ukraine on weapons as they were in Iraq and Afghanistan, on yeah. weapons yeah, yeah. and personnel. Personnel is what costs. They won't so for very little money, you can actually get, you know, yeah, you, yeah. Oh, okay, all these artillery shells and, are flying out the back door, but they're if projecting American somebody power. Somebody else with is fighting few exceptions, for you. You're on the good side this time rather yes. than yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan, which is a hugely expensive, hugely unpopular enterprise. Hugely useless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So the truth is it's cheap at twice the price, but I just yeah. don't think that message is get cutting through in a lot of... But then Americans. again, you also have the primary voters who choose the nominee and then you have the general yeah. electorate that tends to be you know, yeah, somewhat yeah. squishy in the middle. So It was interesting actually because we did a thing a couple of days ago on the show ahead of uh, Rishi Sunak going and looking what happened when Prime Ministers had been before. He said, what, I was watching back some of the old sort of Reagan-Thatcher press conferences. It's a million miles away from where Trump is now, you know, in terms of the, um, talking about standing shoulder, shoulder to shoulder over Soviet Russia and yeah. that war yeah. coming down. It's incredible. The, it's incredible uh, how it's changed. I mean, he may not be the nominee. I mean, he does, he can, yeah, I mean, even fun. if he's in jail, he can still constitutionally run for president. And, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you can. Yeah, no, there is no, we always used to think that actually he can't. Yeah. He can. Is that right? It is right. He That's can still terrifying. run. Although in the My past. My theory is he would also win from jail. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> I think the troubles with America, a lot mm. of the rules, you know, although we've kind of, we, we were so admiring of their constitution a lot of the stuff is not written down and yeah. it's based on the gentleman's assumption yeah. that you wouldn't run for president eggs. if yeah, you yeah, were yeah, in yeah. jail yeah. right but if you're not a gentleman or if you're not a, or a gentlewoman or if you're not uh, if you have no shame and i think trump famously lacks that then why not yeah and we're going to look actually at all the runners and riders uh, tomorrow. Uh, uh, the fact that we've got Sean Spicer, former... Oh, very good. That'd former uh, yes. Donald Trump uh, spin doctor tomorrow. Um, let's just very finally talk about... Before you remember, we're going to hear from Sadiq Khan, the, the mayor of London. But uh, the, <laughs> we started this week the exit interviews, uh, speaking to MPs who announced they're standing down as a sort of reflection yeah. on the career. And ever since then, dozens more have announced they're going, including yes, chance to, now... Yeah. So we had Ian Blackford, yeah. leader of the yeah. SNP in Westminster, now Caroline Lucas, the only Green... MP, she says she wants to focus on fighting nature and climate emergencies, but from outside Parliament. I can, I can totally see that. I mean, yeah. she's one MP mm. because of the PR system. She's you know the Green Party here is one MP in Parliament. In Germany, the Green Party is in 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 government. I mean, it's the yeah. second coalition partner with the Social Democrats. Well, in Scotland, and in Scotland, yeah. of course, yeah. So, um, so actually, you can you can probably do a lot more outside, especially when you've got well-established pressure groups. Yeah, I think it's really hard if you're all sort of a lone MP, if you're an independent, you don't really wield the power to be able to make very much difference through policy. You know, I think she sort of said one of her great achievements is getting natural history accepted as a subject you can do a GCSE in, which is great. Yeah. But, you know, for a career 
of, of, of the length that she's sort of had. I think what she's probably underestimated, because it's really hard to see it from the outside, is that just by being there and mm. by being a regular yeah. voice on the media, you know, that has helped to shape the debate. And I think, you know, in the time that she's been in Parliament, the country has definitely gone And actually more... the Greens have got sort of two or three other target seats in the next election, where they've got a decent chance. And they did yeah. very well in the local elections, Locals. but not in Brighton and Hope. Yes, which, I've wondered. Where they lost yeah. their majority, actually. Where they have been running the council, which is... Yes. Exactly. Which is a bit in, so in Bristol in Norfolk. They sort of yes. feel like they're on the arm. So they've done yeah. well elsewhere, yeah. but not in, on her turf. Yeah. But but I, I'm not, she, I don't think that's a reason why she's yeah. opting no. out, but still. But I think she was very good at showing that you could have a competent, you know, a, a good politician yeah. from the Green Party, and therefore people wouldn't be afraid to vote for them yeah. in the way that they would have been. And in fact, she in said in a statement the intensity of the constituency commitments, yeah. together with the particular responsibilities of being my party's sole MP, mean that ironically, I've not been able to focus as much as I would like on the existential challenges that drive me. That, that's, you know, because being a one-man band MP is such a... Yeah. There's a lot of admin. Oh, exactly. a lot of admin yeah. and all that. Yeah, if you yeah. try to save the planet while you're also trying to get that <laughs> zebra crossing put in. But, uh, I mean, but it'd be interesting to see how, to what extent she... What, what influence she exercises mm. on those big groups that are in the headlines every day outside, yeah. like Stop Oil and so on. Yeah. Does, she, yeah. does she moderate their influence? Yeah. Does she get herself arrested yet again? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Or again, I should say, as she has done in the past. And you wonder whether she'll be more... Almost being a, a single MP sort of diminishes her mm. in the sort of the media and, you know, and actually being the first Green MP... Former MP Dame uh, uh, Caroline Lucas might yeah. be better, you know, in terms yeah. of her profile. And, and like she that. could become the figurehead of all those movements outside yeah. Parliament. So yeah. actually, she might be right. This might be a very pragmatic move yeah. to and have more power. She'd have more time to do it. You know, I thought yeah. it was really interesting that she pointed out she just feels she wastes a lot of life waiting to vote mm. and things like that. Yeah. And there are so many inefficiencies in the way that Parliament Just's does right, business. Yeah. Let's turn attention to now a story. We talked a lot about the uh, the the barges. The, the government wants to moor up to po to house asylum seekers. Well, they're taking a look now at the uh, London's Royal Docks. Uh, that's where they want to site one of them. But the plans are being opposed by the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, who's on the line now. Hi, Sadiq. Hi, good morning, Matt. Uh, why not uh, do your bit, help the government out? They've got these barges, they're trying to address the problem. Why not uh, 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 host one of these barges? Look, we know from previous experience that the government takes uh, years to process claims for uh, asylum. And these barges simply aren't fit for purpose in relation to concerns around health, in relation to concerns around safety, in relation to concerns around well-being of housing. Uh, probably for years, people who are high and highly vulnerable, some may have been the victims of trafficking, some may have been the victims of modern slavery, some may have in countries of origin been tortured. And the idea that you put hundreds of people all together on a barge where there's no community infrastructure there, just just beggars belief. To give you an idea of those of your listeners that don't know the Royal Docks, there aren't GP practices there, there aren't health centres there, there aren't schools there where children can go, uh, there aren't places there to support these uh, families and these uh, individuals. And so what the government should instead be doing is addressing the massive backlog of people still waiting for their claims to be processed. And the reason why I say they could be languishing for years, Matt, is the numbers of people currently waiting for their claims to be processed is north of 122,000. Ten years ago, it was only 12,000. So we knew there's a massive uh, backlog. What the government could also be doing, as well as addressing the backlog, is to give funding to local authorities and partners to enable those who are asylum seekers to be housed within communities where there is support rather than offshore accommodation. Um, Zub, while you've been talking there, somebody just texted in saying, barges, NIMBY, spare me. Isn't this the, the, the case that wherever, the, you know, we have got this big problem, if the government came to you and said, we're going to take over half the hotels in London, 
you wouldn't like that either. Isn't it just the case that you you think there's a massive problem, but you just don't want it on your doorstep? Can I be quite clear? It's the opposite of a NIMBY. I'm somebody who's the mayor of the most diverse city in the world, who's proud of our record of welcoming asylum seekers and uh, refugees. Shortly, you'll be having on the brilliant Danny Finkelstein, who's written a book about his family's journey to uh, our country, and you know the massive contribution that family's made to our country. Our most successful Olympian uh, is also somebody who is a refugee. The point I'm making is that we should be providing a safe haven in our city, but it shouldn't be offshore accommodation on a barge. We should be housing asylum seekers and refugees in a humane way, processing their claims uh, far, far quicker. So if they are given refugee status, they can contribute to our society as they want to do so. And by the way, you will know many of those who have come here, you know, seeking asylum are themselves either doctors, they're scientists, uh, many but of them where, are interpreters. I suppose the question is, where do you put them? Because if it's in uh, houses, then people listening to this will say, well, I've been living in London for years and I can't get a house. If it's in hotels... Every hotel room taken out is a tourist who can't come to London and spend money instead. So if you are saying, yes, they should be, they could be housed in London but not on a barge, where would you put them? What, what I would be doing is giving local authorities the finances and the support to be able to house them within their communities, speaking to council leaders who know their communities the best to find out where there's uh, capacity. In London, we've started to buy back... But every time the government's tried to do this, council leaders say they don't want it. They're up in arms on the south coast in uh, Dorset, where they've got the barge going there. Whenever they've, t- you know, they've done it in uh, hotels, in seaside towns, um, council leaders and MPs are up in arms about that. It is nimbyism. People, you can't say, yes, we should do something, and then oppose every option uh, to do it. Well, that's not exactly London. So in London, when it came to the Syrian uh, uh, refugees, when it came to the Ukrainian uh, refugees, when it came to those from Afghanistan, where the government worked with councils, mm. councils were able to move very quickly to find suitable accommodation. The problem is this. Uh, if the accommodation is temporary, it should be temporary. But because of the massive backlog in the claims being processed, temporary accommodation becomes accommodation for years and years and years so it's a combination of things yes we've got the ability to house with the sufficient resources from the government by working with councils but secondly by fast-tracking asylum cases these people who uh, are genuine refugees can be uh, allowed to work and so forth and i think the government should seriously consider if there's going to be a backlog for the foreseeable future allowing those asylum seekers with skills who want to work to be able to work because what they don't want to do when you speak to asylum seekers and listen to them Aside from them telling you their horrible stories, it's many of them uh, want to work and want to contribute and not be a burden on society or the taxpayer. Well, we'll see if Rishi Sunak uh, takes your criticism and suggestions on board. Obviously, he's over in the United States right now. He didn't throw the first pitch at the baseball game. But Sadiq, well, team, Matt, you, you know, did. Matt, well, well, let me tell you, listen, I think, I think courageous, gutsy, charismatic, <laughs> wonderful leaders, they, 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 they do throw the first pitch. And there, there are some brilliant leaders, uh, brilliant, brilliant leaders, yeah. who throw you, not, one, Mariah not, Carey. Not, not one first pitch, but two. But I'll tell, tell you a funny story, Matt. I, I threw a first pitch twice, but before I did my first one, the New York Mets versus the Minnesota Twins, my team, who are incredibly cruel, showed me a YouTube video of Mark Wahlberg <laughs> separately 50 Cent and separately Mariah Carey throwing a first pitch, which was disastrous. And I suspect Rishi's been shown those youtube videos and and bottled it uh, all i say to rishi is some of us you know didn't bottle it i've thrown uh, for the new york mets and the san francisco giants and my claim my claim to fame matt no no, no let me finish the story Go my on. claim to fame my claim to fame is, is after i threw the first pitch uh, Mets versus the twins uh, i kid you not, I, you can ask members of the team in the press afterwards i sat behind the nets and watched the game and about three or four innings through I, this is a true story 
uh, one of the uh, uh, Twins fans heckled his uh, uh, pitcher and said, I, I won't swear, but for, for beep sake, you throw it even worse than the mayor of London. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 do you know what I mean? So, so um, I'll take that all day long. So anyway, we've still got Matt, Matt and Marvin here. Matt, you were there when David Cameron went to a... Was it a baseball game or it was, basketball it was, game? It was, it was, it was, a, it was actually... No, it was basketball, a base, it was, basketball. Basketball. No, Cameron no, was there the for... Yes, the hot dog moment. It was a basketball game, and then he went into the um, went onto the pitch, whatever you call it, uh, in the court. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. That's the one. Court. Uh, uh, you know, in the break, and yeah. um, with Obama, and Obama was mobbed, mobbed by you know by dozens of supporters and by crews and all the rest of it. And then the camera sort of wandered, and after some empty space, it came across a very lonely figure. <laughs> Standing myself on his tiptoes, kind of trying to see what was going on. And it was our prime minister. And, uh, and we put this at the end of our piece uh, for Channel 4 News. And uh, Craig Oliver, who was then the head of comms, <laughs> who's a mate of mine, was yeah. not pleased at all. I have to <laughs> say. I can't Can I just say, that. Sadiq, do you want, do you want your second, second pitch to be the, um, or your two pitches to be your legacy? Because you, you talked about it a lot longer than we thought we would. Is that really what you want? It was a great job. Let me so I was advised by you're, both... You're Bill still talking Blasio. about it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, and Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, both advised me against doing it. They said there are very ah, few upsides. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there are many, many downsides. And, and, and Bill was worried because Bill is, Bill's experience, who was then the mayor of New York, was yeah. he'd been booed by 40,000 Mets fans. <sighs> and uh, no, so... Yeah. so I, I, I did text him after to say, Bill, I was cheered by 40,000 New Yorkers. Uh, Man, Vic, would you do it if you, you, you got the no. invite? <laughs> but also, I want to know... You I mean, practice all the time, don't you? I will practice all, just in case, yeah. for that moment. But um, we don't do anything like that. We don't sort of have a ritual humiliation for yeah, foreign true. leaders. We should take them well, to Well, we sent George Osborne out to present uh, medals at the Paralympics and he got booed. We wear high-vis vests every day. That's humiliation. Manvin and Matthew there this week. Matt Five, Mel, we see in Channel 4 News. Of course, you can catch Manvin Rana every day on the Stories of Our Times podcast, where you get your podcasts from. Up next, it's my interview with Daniel Finkelstein about his new book, Hitler Starting Mum and Dad. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Daniel Finkelstein's new book, Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad. He describes himself as a story of how the great forces of history crashed down in a terrible wave on two happy families. He says the story of how my family took a journey which ended up happily in Hendon, eating crusty bread rolls with butter in the Tesco cafe near the M1, but on the way took a detour through hell. I'm delighted that Times columnists conservative peer and my friend Danny Finkelstein joins me now. Danny, first of all, can I get out of the way? The book's amazing. Explain where we are uh, and why we're here. Yeah, we're sitting in the Wiener Holocaust Library and Alfred Wiener was my grandfather, my mother's father. In the 1920s, he's one of the leaders of German Jews in Berlin. He's already written a tract warning against bloody pogroms saying that our descendants will talk of bestial murders unless we do something, uh, which of course we don't. And he begins to tour Germany, giving speeches, repelling libels and slander against Jews, often being his meetings being broken up by neo-Nazis or anti-Semites. And his main weapon in that fight was to try to tell the truth, to collect the truth and tell the truth. So he begins a collection of everything that the Nazis say, everything that they publish, all their uniforms, what their structure of their groups were, what their positions were on quite arcane issues. You know, what is the Nazi position on Lithuania? What is Nazi sense of humour? Anything that you might want to know. The first time he tries that collection, it is ultimately destroyed. Goering works out that the collection exists, arrests some of the people involved, and my grandfather has to leave Germany while Goering chases and eventually forces the destruction of the original archive. But he begins again in 1934 in Amsterdam, where the family moves, and what you see is the latest iteration of that. We're in Russell Square at the Wiener Holocaust Library, and it's still a thriving collection, but with many, many millions of items which originated with that collection, which helped the Nuremberg trials, which helped the Eichmann trials, where, for instance, uh, when people were chasing Mengele, the so-called angel of death, they thought he was in Argentina, but nobody had a photograph of him. My grandfather had a photograph of him. They collected photographs of everybody. When Hess landed here, there was a big question of whether he was landing here because he was a moderate and he wanted peace. In fact, Alfred was able to show he was a crackpot and an extremist and he was able to ensure the library put on everybody's ministerial desk a dossier on who Hess really was. Do you think your grandfather was collecting it because he thought they could be stopped or had he already made the leap to 
I think I know where this is heading and I want a full record of how he got there. No, we thought he think he thought that it could be stopped. Um, and so, you know, the interesting question is, was he right about the power of truth? In some ways he wasn't mm. because he didn't stop what happened. Uh, he went, for example, to see von Papen, the, the Chancellor, his office, and they, they, he warned them, he gave them a dossier of what Nazis had done, agitation, cemetery destruction, and von Papen's aide says, uh, well, I'm sure Hitler condemns this. I spoke to him yesterday and he, he's completely against agitation against the Jews. He is a decent man, if a little bit overexcitable. He actually said that, my grandfather wrote it down at the time. So, you know, in some ways he hit both a combination of people not wanting to know, being very naive, and ultimately he yeah. failed to stop what happened. But then again, afterwards, uh, his collection was vital in proving what they did, in creating a narrative about the Holocaust. So the books that you see around us not only are in the library, but often couldn't have been written without the library. And, you know, in some of the earliest works, Gerald Reitlinger's Final Solution, he says, you know, that he's able to reach a conclusion that there was such a thing because of the work of yeah. the Wien Library. And so I suppose it could be said that he may not have been right about stopping the, sec the Second World War and the Holocaust, but since then it's been invaluable in warning yeah. against it happening again. But of course, this, this is a st that's the story of your grandfather, and this is actually the story of your, your mum and dad. Let's start with your, the story of your mum growing up in Berlin. Her parents conclude that actually, based on the work that your grandfather was doing, that that was not a safe place to be, but chose Amsterdam as the place to go. Absolutely. So my mother was born in June of 1933. And at that point, Alfred is actually balanced between his life in Berlin and his life in Amsterdam. He realised he was going to have to move because of the confrontation that he'd had personally with Goering, and he realised they'd have to get out. So he's going to start again. My mother's born at that point. And so I always thought of my mother as being Dutch because she was brought up in Holland. She went to school there. And when she talked about, you know, foreign foods and other things, it was like Dutch sweets and Dutch savoury foods. And, and I thought of her in that way. But obviously when I studied, I realised, well, that's actually wrong. She's really German. They were German Jewish refugees. So in Holland, there were lots of Germans who went, Jews who went there, thinking, and the Frank family is another example yeah. of that, thinking Holland is going to be neutral. And um, right up to the edge of the war, you know, one of my grandfather's associates is talking to Heim Weizmann, the great Zionist leader, and said, Amsterdam will remain neutral. They thought it was like Switzerland, because it had been in yeah. the First World War. But of course, that had a problem for the library. My grandfather had all his work in secret in Holland, because they were worried it would undermine Dutch neutrality and that Dutch... That it was such a powerful collection that it, yes. was, it would be seen as an act of aggression to Correct. be hosting it. And so when, when the famous um, pogrom occurs in Germany, known as Kristallnacht in, in 1938, the Jewish office that my grandfather is running publishes eyewitness statements about it. But for the first time, it's traceable. They were very careful before that not to put their imprint on it. They didn't have a sign in the door. And... The chairman of the office is called in by the Dutch Prime Minister who says, you have to stop doing this, it's endangering our neutrality. And my grandfather realises he has to go to London. But what he doesn't appreciate, and neither does my grandmother, despite everything that they knew mm. about what the Nazis would do, the one thing they didn't know was they'll come and do it here. Uh, they thought Holland would be exempt from it. So, you know, one of the things that people often ask, and it's also true of my father's story too, is, you know, how comes these people didn't get out? The answer was they didn't know where to go from or to. So think in 19, 
1937, or indeed 1939, that Britain was going to be safer than where they were, you know, how would you make that judgment? It would have seemed quite an odd judgment. So lots of people get trapped in places where actually the Nazis go, and that's one of the reasons why they you know, end up in concentration camps. But, well, let's work through that story then, because so often it's a case of by the time somebody in your story realises that they should have done something, it's too late. Your grandfather is in London. Your grandmother and their daughters are still in Amsterdam. You mentioned the, the Frank family, Anne Frank and her family. And their, their stories are sort of unfolding almost side by side, aren't they? Even, yeah. even attending the same schools. That's true. And Otto Frank has this place where the family can go and hide, the famous annex or attic. That is very rare. If you read Anne Frank's diary, you realise the infrastructure they had behind it was quite big. Even then they got caught. Mm. Right at the beginning of the Nazi invasion in May 1940, Greta, my grandmother, thinks, you know, they're going to come here first. They know about this archive. They'll probably know about Alfred. They know he's not here. They're going to come here. So they start burning everything. And then the next thing they do is they go and hide. But they realise shortly they're actually not probably looking for specific individuals at that point. And they just can't hide. There's nowhere to go. Mm. And they didn't want to split the family up. That's a, a consideration for lots of families. So some families are able to find places to hide. For some it works and for some it does mm. not work. But lots of people just didn't have the place to hide or the money to do it. And, you know, money was very scarce. My grandfather was in London. You know, my grandmother found some work. But one of the things about being a refugee, in addition to this big existential problem they had, they had very banal problems. How do they feed themselves? What do they do? You know, my grandmother, she's got three young daughters and she's by herself. And yet she's got to find something to do for work. Otherwise, she won't be able to feed the family. And she ends up working within the sort of the support system for other refugees. Yes. Which in, in one way is good because it means she was earning money, but she also knew then what was happening and that things were getting tougher and tougher and eventually there would be the knock on the door. Yeah, she absolutely appreciated that. And you know, as it gets closer to, the, to June 1943, the date when they're arrested, the situation gets worse and worse. So there's been this famous event, the Wannsee Conference, which decides to move from a policy of excluding Jews from social life which means things like segregating schooling so if you go to the Anne Frank house you'll see a big sign which is a class list of Germans of Jewish blood who are in the school right horrendous phrase one of them is Margot Frank another is my aunt Ruth and all the schools were collecting together lists of the Jewish children so they could all go to Jewish schools which is where my, my aunt ends up and where Margot Frank also yeah. ends up although obviously leaves part of the way through it so they progress from that to a policy of beginning to concentrate the people together, take them to this place called Vesterbork, and from Vesterbork people are what's called transported to the east. What that actually meant was being sent to their deaths. How do you piece together then that exact story of your mother, your grandmother, your aunts and so on? Because all these books around us are filled with the stories of people who didn't make it. Yeah. So look, first of all, my mother and my aunts all left testimony. Mm. Uh, something called the Association of Jewish Refugees. It's got this Refugee Voices program and they recorded my mother for four hours talking mm. about her story. She gave talks in schools. I've yeah. got a recording of one of those. So we got that. There was quite a lot of correspondence. Obviously because my grandfather created this library, yeah. he was interested in archival record. So he kept a lot of those documents himself. And, and that's how I managed to piece it together. The other thing is that anything that happened to your family, if you're listening to this and 
you've got a family story, it's a bit vague, but you've got one or two items of information mm. about it. My message to you is you can piece that together. And the way that you do it is simply think, who else suffered this? Mm. And has anyone else said this? So my mother and my aunt had two different accounts of which trains they went on, whether they were cattle trucks or passenger trains. And I had to work out which was which. But I could work it out because there were two books that I came across where people had been or seen the same exact train with the dates and times. And because of that, I was able to work out who was right, which was remarkable enough considering that she's six years younger than my mother, actually. So let's pick up the story then when they get on the train and take us through then what happens to them. Well, Westerbork, which was a refugee camp that the Jews had paid for to help the Dutch put Jewish refugees from Germany. The idea was that the Dutch would let them come into the country, providing there was somewhere where the Jews paid for them to be there. This was during the years before the Nazi occupation. That is now turned over to the Germans, and the Germans run a train track right into the middle of the camp, from which they can, every Tuesday, send people off to concentration camps. And my mother's aunt, Nutti, or Gertrude, uh, whatever you want to call her, she and my mother's cousin and my mother's uncle, they are all fairly early on onto one of these trains. My mother always thought that this train had taken them to Auschwitz, which is the best known of such camps, and where lots of people did go. But in fact, they went to Sobibor. And one of the most sort of traumatic things in producing this book was learning what Sobibor was. People sometimes lived in Auschwitz because some people were sent to labour in, in Auschwitz, but others go to their deaths quite quickly. In Sobibor, that happened to everybody. So the average lifespan in Sobibor was three hours. Wow. And reading about what happened to them, that was quite a distressing experience because I hadn't completely known it. And just in parentheses, one of the things that I worked out was that John Demjanjuk, whom you know, listeners might remember, was thought of as being Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka. And I always used to joke, oh, he's not, he'll be Shmivan the Terrible of somewhere else. And indeed he was. He was Ivan the Terrible of Sobibor. Uh, and he was there and was accused and found guilty of the murder of 28,000 people, of whom my great-aunt and great-uncle and my mother's first cousin were, were three. And is it because everyone who went there died so quickly? Is that why Auschwitz is so much better Correct. known? Because That's some exactly people survived. So only 18 people go to Sobibor and don't die there. And even those people were sent off somewhere very quickly. So they didn't see yeah. how Sobibor was created. But Eventually, there is a camp revolt in Sobibor, which is how we know of its existence. The, the Nazis still destroyed yeah. all the papers. My mother doesn't go on one of these Tuesday transports, and the reason for that is they have become citizens of Paraguay. And the book explains how this extraordinary thing happened. They're obviously not Paraguayan. Not only do they know no, they're not Paraguayan, the Paraguayans do, obviously. So do the Germans, and so do the Allies. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows the papers they've got are fake, but they have something critical ingredient. They provide... Jews with an exchange value. And by this point in the war, Himmler thinks, I'm not sure we're going to win this. So he begins to create the idea of an exchange programme. People who are listening will have heard of the tens of thousands of people who starved to death in Belsen. Belsen was created originally as a camp where Jews will be exchanged for money, for tanks, for and this was the crucial yeah. thing, Germans who were in occupied countries, and no one ever really does get exchanged. The Allies don't want to do this because it involves letting fit and able-bodied people yeah. go back to Germany and fight f 
for the, the axis. So they don't want that. So they try and stop it. And as a result, very few of these exchanges take place. One exchange does take place with 136 people in all the millions of people who died in the Holocaust, in the tens of thousands who died in Belson. My mother is one of these 136, along with her family. That's incredible. Yes. Incredible. Which meant that they could come out essentially and tell the story that so many other people couldn't. Absolutely. And so, interestingly, my, after the war, my grandfather continues his library, obviously, as you can see. And he, one of the things they do is a, is a program of eyewitness statements. But he didn't take her eyewitness statements from his children, which was a bit of an odd thing, <laughs> you know, an odd thing to do. Anyway, so, but however, they, they did give an eyewitness statement. And as a result, yes. I know all about this and we can tell a, a chapter of, from the Holocaust which the way that I put it is that my mother's story is an extremely idiosyncratic version of a story you'll know about but while you'll have heard of Belson you won't know what it is and uh, while you may have imagined there might have been exchanges you'll not understand the politics yeah. of them and that all comes out. My father's story which we'll come on to obviously is a is a sort of um, standard version of, of a crime that you probably didn't know about. Well, this is the thing, because you're right, in, in the sort of hierarchy of common knowledge, people know about Auschwitz, they've heard of Belson, by far the much less known or studied or taught part of what was unfolding in the Second World War is your, your father's story. So he's Ludwig simultaneously growing up, nice family, nice big house, in Lvov, which is now Lviv, growing up in Poland. Take us through his yeah. story. I should just say, we're in this building, there is a, a copy of all the Nuremberg documents. And one of the first documents actually that came out of a personal folder when I started doing the book was a copy which my grandfather had in his personal possession of the indictment of the Nuremberg defendants. And every crime that they were indicted for, all the big four main crimes, the Soviets were guilty of too. Mm. But they ended up being prosecutors rather than in the dock. My father wasn't mildly prosperous. They were rich. Yeah. That's the truth of it. <laughs> yeah. And my grandfather had the nickname, the Iron King. Uh, him and his brother Bernard had this massive metalworks factories. Indeed, it has occurred to me to wonder whether the tracks that ultimately take them to their imprisonment in both cases were not Finkelstein tracks from Finkelstein Steel. Yeah. But they, they, you know, in 1938-39, they build this incredibly modern, beautiful Art Deco house, and it's a sign of their confidence. You know, the families lived there for hundreds of years, and they live in it for a year. And uh, the reason is that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which freed up Hitler to invade Holland, divides Poland between the Nazis and the, and the communists. And Lvov is in the communist sphere of interest. So that in September 1939, the Soviets invade that part of Poland, the city that my grandfather is doing his business in. They integrate it with the Soviet Union. It becomes Soviet Lviv, Soviet Ukraine. And in April 1940, they arrest civic leaders, wealthy people, everyone right down to kind of Esperanto speakers and philatelists, anyone who could have any kind of connection with the outside world. And they arrest my grandfather and he disappears into the gulag. My grandmother goes to find out the next morning where he's got to. And they say, come back in four days and we'll tell you what to do next. And three days, in other words, the night before she can do that, the rest of the family is arrested. And they are to be sent to the interior of the Soviet Union to 
It, well, it was known as Siberia. In fact, strictly speaking, it's Kazakhstan. And I always sort of say it was a little bit about political destruction of the Polish elite and a little bit a kind of, you know, I joke, Soviet levelling up. Right, so the idea was, you know, you populate the interior with people who didn't live there and they'll farm the land. And so they're going to live on somewhere which my grandmother referred to as an island of hunger and death, a farm in, in Kazakhstan. In a way, the thing, because there's two stories unfold alongside each other, and the Soviet story makes less sense. Not that it makes any sense what the Nazis were doing, but on their own terms, rounding up the people they didn't like and killing them had some logic, was rounding up people and dumping them in the middle of no, it, a sort of a cow shed or a field. No, no, it, had, it, had two, it had two, it had a sort of warped logic of its own, so it was twofold. One aspect of it undoubtedly was, look, my, like, one of the things that my grandfather is accused of in his interrogation is strengthening the might of capitalist Poland. And he unquestionably was guilty of that. Yeah. Right, my grandfather, he was a did, my grandfather did, did strengthen the might of capitalist power. And ultimately, he's sent to the Gulag for what is effectively a life sentence. They couldn't have expected him to, to mm. come out of that alive. My grandfather is sent there for being an antisocial element. So part of it is political. And then, obviously, my father was 10 when he was mm. arrested, but he wasn't going to be 10 forever. Yeah. So part of it was that, was yeah. a political thing. They knew that even though they'd had a, a so-called election and they'd actually pass the power over formally to the Soviet authorities. Actually, people were really against it. They knew that. So this was a way of politically Breaking disposing of that and therefore winning power in the way that rampaging conquesters of all kinds mm. have. But there was also an, an economic element. The idea was, let's create more jobs and prosperity in places that people don't want to go to. And the way that we'll do that is turning these kind of... Um, bloodsuckers because yeah. they were capitalists into the working class at one point as they're on this train they've been three weeks on this train they come out and they're given a speech and the speech says you are now members of the working class uh, and your job is to adjust yourself to the existing members of the working class and this class analysis that they've been turned from people who are consuming surplus value into people who are productive. That's mm. the, that was the idea. So there was a big ideological element of it. They actually basically, it's an admission that for all that Marx thought that all, you know, the state would wither away and everyone would voluntarily go and do this. Actually, they kind of knew they'd have to poke somebody with a rifle yeah. and put them on a cattle truck in order to get them to do it. So it's quite an admission. And there's a huge ideological element to it. And again, your father's story is one of moments of good fortune and luck, you know, sitting in the cow shed while people literally died around him. Absolutely. Look, I'm not, uh, you know, deliberately, because I'm hoping people will read the book, there's an awful lot of uh, twists and turns yeah. to this story that I'm obviously not telling you now. But yes, it's, uh, it's quite a story and there's an awful lot of coincidence. And you very uh, shrewdly, I think, when you read it, said, uh, look, the extraordinary thing is for all the amounts of luck these people had there were lots of people yeah. who did not have that luck and what the result of this is that there are a lot fewer people like that and that's absolutely right that's a, that's that's a completely correct observation about it everybody who survives because obviously when i was a child i did meet quite often people who survived the holocaust or fewer but some people who survived what my grandfather and my father had been through and i was always surprised at how extraordinary their stories was i tell the story of Betty, my mother's home help in the book, and how amazing that story mm. is. And I was always surprised by the uniformity with which people had these incredible stories. Yeah. And then it struck me, of course they did, otherwise they'd be dead. And then you talk as well about how 
despite those extraordinary stories, these incredible experiences, how normal they seemed to be as well. And then they, they, your mother and your father, they both end up in Hendon, eating bread and butter in, uh, in Tesco. They literally do, that's not a metaphor. <laughs> they did do that. And got on with their lives. It didn't want to be defined by it. Yeah, my, my mother... So Harry Borden, the photographer, does an amazing book called Survivors. He pictures survivors of the Holocaust. And he gets them each to write a few lines. My mother writes something like, um, I'm a mother and a wife and a teacher and a person, and only then a survivor. And that's very much how she saw it. She was very... They were very happy to talk about it. Though I did note, interestingly, that my father... When I wrote the book, I realised my father had left out talking about some parts of his family, which mainly were maybe a bit too painful. But nevertheless, they basically were willing to talk to me about whatever I asked about it. They were willing to talk about it, but they didn't want to live in it. And my mother was very much one for a sort of sense of proportion. She'd never have an argument about a hedge or disapprove of her child's choice of partner or make a big fuss about something. She, She didn't think it was worth it. So some people I think have this, they saw C. Hitler and Stalin in everything and my mother and father saw it in nothing. Yeah. The only thing that I would say that did come across very strongly is my father had a particularly strong view about never breaking the law. He used to say we're living in this incredible democratic society where you can express your opinion then you ought to keep the law. And I, When I was at university I used to not make mixtapes for people because it was stealing people's intellectual <laughs> property rights and that comes from my it was a bit of a, obviously a loss of sense of uh, proportion but um, I, rem- I remember if the only time you ever get into trouble is saying I'm starving um, uh, you know as a, as a way yeah. of like can we have dinner now yeah my mother hated that and she would like well justifiably she, she would go off yeah, on yeah. one about that but <laughs> apart from that they didn't they were immensely well adjusted so you talk about having a sense of proportion your approach to democracy how do you think their experience, the fact they taught you about it, has affected your approach to life, the fact you are involved in politics with a very clearly sort of marked out centrist position in politics. Yeah. So look, the first thing is, you know, I remember at school people would say, uh, oh, you know, politics are so boring. And so, and my view of it is, you know, politics murdered members of my family. It stole everything that we had. It exiled my grandfather. He lost his precious German citizenship, which had meant so much to him. So he'd like to spend his whole life studying books on Arabic, I think. And then, you know, he has to, he has to end up spending his life going around in meetings fighting violent Nazis. So the first thing about it is you can't take the view that politics doesn't matter given everything that it did to our family. And it's on all three, myself and my siblings, we've all done some form of public life. But in terms of the specific view, I think the most important thing, it has made me a moderate with a possibly an overemphasis, but certainly an emphasis on stability and conservatism. So I am more suspicious than most people of wild sweeping ideas. And I do think when you're looking for something, you have to start from where you are. And you have to... I sometimes see people talking in apocalyptic terms. For example, people always go, everything in this country is broken. Well, yeah, there are some things wrong. We have to do something about it. But everything in this country is not broken, right? You know, my father ended up being four days away by horse and carriage from the nearest town when he was in this farm ranch. And so you've got to reserve the language of everything's broken mm. for things that actually merit it mm. and the fact that there's a train strike or indeed that we've got some problems of funding of the health service and organisation is not the same as everything's broken and and that may seem a quibble but I don't, I don't think it is I think it's important to 
to remember how lucky we are, how, how extraordinary this country is for most of the people who live in it, most of the time. So I think that does, that, that has an effect on my overall politics. A couple of specific issues. One that people often ask me about, and one that interestingly enough they rarely ask me about. So the one that people often ask me about is what about refugees. Mm. And undoubtedly, being the child of refugees has made me very concerned that we should have a functioning asylum system, that we should be welcoming to people who want to come here and who need to come here uh, and allow them to integrate. It has not made me believe that it is practical to have a completely open immigration policy, which I think would destroy those things, because I think it would make it very difficult for us then to be able to take in anybody with any kind of degree of public consent. But it has definitely made me you know, more liberal. I found it I did not, in fact, vote. I've abstained on the legal migration bill because I thought that bits of it weren't practical, but other bits of it, particularly the Rwanda policy, I just couldn't live with. So I, it definitely has affected my view on that. But what people don't often ask is, is, what about my views on our foreign policy? Well, my grandfather did not want to be a refugee. In the correspondence between my grandparents on my father's side, they constantly talk about how they will, the war will be over and they will go back to walking among the linden trees near in Herbertoff Street, which is where they used to live, yeah. in the beautiful city where they used to play bridge and go for coffee uh, mornings and where my father had been gone to school and my grandfather's business. They never go back there. That wasn't what they wanted. Of course, they wanted to be welcomed here as a refugee, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to be refugees. And my grandfather on the other side, the same. Right. So one of the things that it's done is made me believe that we need to take some risks to try to defend people living where they live in peace. And it has probably led me to mistakes. You know, it, it now does seem as though the war that we fought in Iraq didn't work. And, you know, those people who argued, for example, that there weren't weapons of mass destruction, which I just thought they were, were right. Um, and you look back at those things and think I was too gung-ho about it. But I was gung-ho about it because of my background, mm. because... For me, it's never satisfactory to say, well, you know, it's across the other side of the world, it's a long way away, we can't do anything about it. Because that's the, you know, people said that about Lvov as well. So, um, Which is back on yes, the front line so again. So I'm obviously with that, you know, and, and there are, by the way, some of the people who have been opposed to us having foreign adventures are very much in favour of taking the action we're doing in Ukraine. Yeah. So we've all moved our, our positions a bit on that. But I'm just trying to explain my politics here. You know, one of the things that's really interesting reading about my grandfather on my mother's side is I realised I would have made quite a few of the same errors, even though I know that now that they are errors. Just for example, it turned out that the, the Zion, he and the Zionists had a big argument. He basically said, we don't need a state uh, because we can be German Jews. Yeah. They said to him, if you stay there, you're all going to die. He said, if we leave you know, you're, we're going to be in a constant fight with people in that country because there are people who live there already. And they were both right. That's the big tragedy. But even reading the bits of my grandfather's thinking on that that were right and that were wrong, I can see I would have made the same correct arguments and the same errors. Whether that's inherited, whether that's <laughs> learnt from my mum, I don't know. You're a bit of a hoarder as well, aren't you? Yes. So, my gra- you know, one of the things, of course, my grandfather is this, like, great collector. And one of the things that happens before the war, my grandmother goes to a, a bookseller and wraps up in wax paper the remaining parts of my grandfather's collection of quite odd oriental knickknacks. My grandfather was, was a great sort of scholar of the Middle East, and so he... And they do get them back after the war, these things. And I, and I 
noticed in that the practice that I've got, which is I keep lots of stuff that will sort of tell you about my life in the same way that, you know, my mother's old cruise liner ticket told me about hers, and some that I've added to, like collecting letters of prime ministers. That's exactly like my grandfather. Yeah. And I know, I, I think that probably is, you know, whether you inherit, as I say, whether they're DNA or cultural, I don't know. Well, Danny, honestly, it's it's such a terrific read. And I, after I read it, sent you a message saying that the way that all those strokes of good fortune that your parents had, which so many other people didn't, uh, meant that there were fewer Danny Finkelsteins in the world, which strikes me as a, as a bad thing. So congratulations on the book. Thank you. And best of luck, Danny Finkelstein. Thanks for joining us. And that's all we've got time for on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can always catch Daniel Finkelstein on the podcast on a Tuesday or on my Times radio show when he takes a look at the news. Join me 10 till 1, Monday to Friday on Times Radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. <laughs>